You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Now, Sarah, we do have a pretty thematic episode this week, at least if, like us, you're living in the Chicago area with its forest fire related air quality issues. So, Kevin, what you're saying is this week your lungs are afire? I've definitely not been breathing easy. We've been staying indoors, but the good news is that means more time for movies. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about two of them this week. First up is Christian Petzold's new film, A Fire. And then we're going to be following that up with the 2022 Oscar Best International Feature nominee, The Quiet Girl. The episode is also thematic in that we've got two foreign language features, so should be a good one on episode 392 of Seeing and Believing. Welcome to episode 392, listeners. I hope that you have recovered psychologically uh, and physically from Barbenheimer extravaganzas of of last weekend. I don't know. Have you, Sarah, are you feeling uh, up to snuff? I am still emotionally devastated, but I also went back to see Oppenheimer a second time, so I have no one to blame for that but myself. Yeah, I'm actually really jealous of that. You saw it in 70mm at Chicago's Music Box Theater. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just probably was a great experience. I wish I could have been there too. It was really good. We were a little bit over a little too far to the side, I think, for the acoustics to work particularly well. And it's a very loud movie. So Mm. I think some of the dialogue was a little bit more muffled this time around, but everything else more than made up for it. I was probably more devastated by it the second time around than I was the first, honestly. I can't wait to see it a second time myself. I've I've recovered psychologically. Uh, I am fighting a little bit of a cold listener, so apologies in advance if my voice sounds weird or if I if I'm snuffling a lot, but we're just going to plow ahead see what we can do to cope with that. We've got a really good episode. I'm excited about this one because we're talking about not one but two foreign films mm-hmm. on the show and I feel like, you know, foreign films we do talk about them but we don't focus on them necessarily as much as we might like so i'm really looking forward to talking about these two films we're going to be talking about a patron pick in the second half of the show in place of our watch list segment listener ron Sturry has recommended colin Buried's 2022 film the quiet girl nominated for best foreign language oscar uh so getting to that in the second half of the show But here in the first half, we're going to be talking about a German film called A Fire. This is directed by Christian Petzold, who's made a bit of a name for himself with films like Phoenix, Transit, and Undine, which are psychologically fraught dramas that toe the boundary between reality and dream logic. Mm -hmm. This year, he gives us A Fire, which follows a writer and photographer who retreat to a secluded house in a seaside forest in order to work on their creative projects, but when they arrive, they discover they're going to be sharing their rental with a couple who are simultaneously friendly and open and also a bit difficult to pin down. It's an arrangement that generates plenty of friction, not in the horror movie we're all going to get murdered in the woods kind of way, but in the I am not mentally prepared to socialize so intimately with these outgoing strangers way. I don't know, maybe that's just a me thing, though. Oh, no, that's definitely a me thing as well. (laughs) Anyway, that, that friction maybe might be a good place for us to start, Sarah. I mean, I don't know about you. Speaking personally, I find that... Even the Petzold films that don't fully work for me still exercise a mysterious sort of gravity. Uh, They immerse me in their worlds and their characters. So do you think that Petzold manages to achieve that or at least something equally interesting with A Fire? Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. So the only other Petzold I've seen so far is 2018's Transit, which is based on the 1994 which is based on the 1944 book of the same name. It's set in sort of modern day France, but it's very much telling a World War II emigration story. And that movie slid off of me and I really, really wanted to love it. I felt compelled by it as I was watching it. And I also wasn't quite sure what to make of it at the same time. It felt like the movie was holding me at arm's length. And... I felt that for a good chunk of a fire as well, until the movie hit a turning point, maybe about two thirds of the way through where I I picked up on what was actually going on in the situation. And I realized, aha, this is what is actually happening here. And then I was much more on board with it. 
I'm still not 100% sure if it stuck the landing. Like, I'm not entirely sure what to make of this movie. So I'm really glad Hmm. that we're going to be able to talk about it because I'm still puzzling over it more than a day later. So did did this work for you? Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is going to end up in the category of pet sold films that didn't fully work for me, but that I did find pretty absorbing, at least in moments. It's interesting that you talk about the, the film kind of coalescing for you in its in its uh final lap because for me that was what almost uh derailed the film for me Hmm. up to that point it's kind of this this um thorny character drama about a writer who is so wrapped up in his own uh career and insecurities and selfishness that he instinctively pushes away literally every attempt to kind of reach out to him and and form some sort of connection with him and i found that to be a pretty engaging story and i also really liked the uh the performance at the heart of that thomas schubert plays uh leon Mm -hmm. uh the the writer character and i think he does a fantastic job of portraying somebody who is very uncomfortable uh, socially and also in his own skin, very insecure and how that manifests as kind of this just utterly nasty kind of antisocial behavior. I thought it was perceptively written and perceptively played Mm. when the film kind of takes a hard turn into without giving away too much uh, tragedy and a meditation on what uh, Leon's art means I found it and to be an interesting move I also found it to be at such a right angle to everything else that had happened up to that point that it it just kind of didn't work for me and I that was the point where I bounced off I guess mm-hmm. yeah and I mean to be fair I also bounced off that hard hard right turn into a slightly different genre as well but there was a moment where Leon is talking around the dinner table with his housemates shortly before then, and something comes out about one of the characters who's been staying in the house up until that point. Um, We learn some additional personal information about Nadia, who is also crashing at the house unexpectedly, that made me realize that the movie was being a lot smarter about Leon's alienation and, frankly, boorishness towards everybody else in a way that... Like, more, more smart about it than I had given the movie credit for, I think. Leon's misanthropy is not the movie's misanthropy, I think. And for a while, he was so close to being the only point-of-view character within the entire movie that I was under the impression that the movie was being a little bit more sympathetic towards him than I felt like I necessarily wanted to be. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I am okay with watching movies about bad people, but I wasn't sure what the movie was getting at beyond it's difficult to be a writer who can't get out of your own head. And so we're going to give this character a chance to just be a jerk to everybody else around him as he tries to struggle his way through writing something that may not necessarily even be all that good. Yeah, in that way, it kind of reminds me of the films of Alex Ross Perry, like Her Mm -hmm. Smell and Listen Up, Philip, which are also about uh, creatives at, at their center who are just deeply misanthropic, very selfish, and kind of unable to view the world around them and receive the world around them in any way that isn't kind of reflected through the prism of their own art. Mm. Um, And I think that's a really interesting angle to take. I think it's especially as a critic, it's kind of a sobering uh, reminder to us that thinking too hard about uh, about why a piece of art works or why something is beautiful uh, can kind of disenchant that that piece of art or that beautiful thing in in ways that are very insidious. And so I liked seeing that kind of being developed through Leon's just nastiness. Hmm. Um, I just I don't know that at the end of the film, I really quite was in the same place with regard to his character that Petzold was. Specifically with uh, Leon's relationship with Nadia, played by the great Paula Beer. I mean, 
uh, beer has been used in a few pet sold films now, and she's got this great quality to her. She's got these these very you know striking eyes, this very striking smile, and yet there's kind of this aura about her. At least for me, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to get your take on this, but for me, there's this aura around her where there, there's just something a little bit almost otherworldly about her. Mm. Um, not supernaturally so, but just something where she's just she's very elusive and there's there's something uh about her that the other characters can't quite get to the bottom of Hmm. and i really liked playing the game with the film for a while of trying to figure her out along with leon Hmm. when the film uh reaches its conclusion it kind of feels like it, it comes down um more or less on a definitive answer about who she is or at least what she wants and i wasn't able to follow it all the way to that destination Hmm. uh, which was disappointing to me because i really liked the performance and the actress and up to that point i was really digging kind of what petzold was doing with her yeah i really i like paula beer's performance in this too i think the word that i kept coming back to for her turn as nadja was self-possession like she knows who she is and she knows what she's about and Leon doesn't know it. His friend Felix also doesn't seem to fully know it, although Felix seems to be on a slightly better or at least more, um, I don't know, friendly track towards what it is that he's trying to accomplish with his own art. And Nadja knows what she's about. She knows what she wants. And we alongside Leon are trying to suss out what exactly that is. And for me, the joy of the movie wasn't figuring out what she was about but figuring out that leon was going to learn that he wasn't all that he thought that he was Hmm. in comparison to her um i don't know it it felt like a really interesting like you mentioned um critique and pulling apart a piece of art in order to be able to um understand it and sometimes that takes away the magic from from it a little bit and for me i think i was approaching this movie almost in another way which is that um it's okay to be critiqued and to try and fail at making art and then pick up and try again, perhaps. So not so much approaching it from the critic's perspective, but from an artist's perspective. And Leon simply just hasn't learned that lesson of growing a slightly thicker skin and then also learning that in order to be able to make good art, you also have to be able to engage with people a little bit better too. Yeah. I, you know, it, I, I like that read of it. And, um, I think that that's definitely true that the film is about not just not just Leon as a character, but specifically Leon as as an artist and sort of the differing ways that he kind of thinks about artistic work and artistic achievements uh, relative to the other characters. So Felix is also an artist. Felix is a is a photographer mm-hmm. working on a portfolio that's going to be his application to art school. And Felix kind of lands on this project where he's going to uh, photograph the sea, but he's he's going to explore the, the concept of the sea through the imagery of portraits. So he's going to take photos of people looking out at the sea and enjoying its beauty. And the sharp contrast between Felix's passion for that and kind of the way that we see that project develop over the course of the film uh, was was very inspiring, honest. And it's also very telling that Leon's immediate response to Felix telling him about this project is to say, it doesn't make any sense because of X, Y, and Z. And he, he immediately analyzes it away um, kind of almost as a self-defense mechanism to sort of like make Felix's project less impressive to make himself feel better about the fact that the book that he's working on is as one character says, crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I think that's it's very psychologically astute, but I also like how it's a very incisive portrait of two different ways of going about thinking about art. And I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Yeah. The other movie that I was thinking of when I was watching this one was earlier this year, Kelly Reichardt's showing up. Uh-huh. I didn't make that connection, but I like it. Yeah, it's it's, I mean... It's there. I think 
this movie and showing up are doing two very different things, but you still have that theme of um, an artist trying to figure something out under deadline and being incredibly prickly to be charitable about it towards everybody else around them. Um, I think that Kelly Reichardt's movie is more focused on the production of the art and what it means to continually have to show up every single day. And Petzold's movie is more about what sort of attitude do you need to bring in order to be able to even start something in the first place? Because if you're starting from a shaky foundation, it's going to end up being total crap, like that one other character mentions about Leon's book. Um, but holding those two in contrast, I don't know. I I want to sink a little bit more into the heads of Petzold's characters, and maybe that's me being unfair to Petzold and the way that he tells his stories, because I feel like he does tend to hold me a little bit more at arm's length and ask me to consider all of them all in their context, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Reichardt's doing that. So on that level, like it's a little bit of an unfair comparison because I was a little bit more on Reichardt's um, wavelength here. But I do appreciate that Petzold is interested in showing that story in all of its context and then trying to trace it from inception to conclusion, regardless of whether or not the art that his character is producing is even any good. Yeah, I mean, the, they are kind of working in pretty different registers. Mm -hmm. uh, Reichert's um, treatment of the subject is you know, very grounded and you know, we talked about this when we, when we reviewed that film is it, it feels very true to like what it actually feels like to just like in the workaday grind of trying to bring an artistic project to fruition. And uh, that groundedness, I think, pays real dividends. Um, this film, like a lot of Petzold's films, you, you mentioned that you'd seen Transit. You know, Transit is, you know, it's about emigration, but it kind of takes place in this dreamlike any place where you know you can't specifically put your finger on you know what the the wartime conflict is that's going on uh where they're where the characters are emigrating from where they're immigrating to um and it's kind of because it's displaced in that way it is really evocative in it, it's able to be about emigration in a very evocative way rather than a literal way mm. like in a in a way that's very grounded and i i like that uh about his films i feel like he does that uh in all four of the ones that i've that i've seen with a fire he kind of evokes that dreamlike quality uh through kind of the 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 looming specter of a forest fire mm -hmm. uh so the characters are staying at this cottage in the woods and there's a forest fire kind of out there somewhere um that is burning and messing up the air quality and um resulting in some closed roads um but it's it's never quite clear just how far away it is and just how much of a threat it should be uh regarded as mm -hmm. and I, I feel like I, I liked the way that Petzold kind of brings that creeping in around the edges of this film. I don't think he's as successful in making that feel of a piece with the subject matter of uh, making art and uh, interpersonal relationships. It's kind of it's there and there's some overlap, I guess, but. I, for whatever reason, it didn't feel like it gelled in the same way that his better films do. It's funny because I was thinking about that forest fire as being another way to turn on the pressure of a deadline. You got to turn in a manuscript. There's something looming on the horizon. It's a little bit indistinct until it's right around the corner. So that worked for me. I don't know that it works in terms of the interpersonal relationships other than the pressure that Leon feels that the other people at this house are putting on him to spend time with them rather than allowing him to just go and work on his book in peace and quiet. Um, so kind of him being torn in multiple directions and the forest fire is just another way to sort of heighten that tension and heighten maybe even that sense of dread 
because he's not entirely sure what his publisher is going to say about it either. So I don't know. I think that around the edges works for me. Where the fire intersects with the rest of the story, I think, is where the movie does finally end up losing me. Yeah, the the uh, final turn is, I I think it's it, it is a problem. It's it's implausible, kind of from a a plot logic standpoint, but it also just feels like the tone really goes in a much different direction from from the rest of the film in a way that's interesting i don't think it's it's wholly successful it is interesting how that is also brought around to deal with the same topic of why certain uh artistic works are able to have a certain kind of power Mm. and um and how the shock of what the forest fires end up doing the the destruction they wreak kind of snaps leon out of his uh solipsism Hmm. um and i like that i just don't know that petzold fully manages the tricky tonal balancing act yeah i feel like it doesn't fully cohere with the almost dream logic that's been woven throughout the movie up until that point and after you hit that turning point, it almost feels as though it's leaned a little bit further into another kind of dream logic that also just doesn't really fully work for me. What I did like about the forest fire was the way that it's shot when it is just around the edges, especially at night. There's a couple of night scenes where um, we see the characters outside looking at the sky and it was the scene was very clearly shot during the daytime and they just put a blue filter over it. And I honestly wish more movies would do that (laughs) Um, because it kind of heightens that dreamy sense of what's going on um, at night. It heightens the sort of alienation that I think Leon is feeling. And you can also just see everything that's going on out there as opposed to doing something that's a little bit more grounded and naturalistic and maybe not being able to get a sense of who these characters are and where they are in the scene. So works for me. Yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, the it's always a dodgy business making a movie about an artistic creator because you then have to sort of uh, write art for them that feels pla- feels like something they would plausibly create. And the thing that Petzl does is he, he is able to... Uh, evoke both Leon's just terrible second novel uh, <laughs> called titled Club Sandwich, which is the just a wonderful pitch perfect, like terrible title to come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, the uh, a later piece that Leon writes that is actually pretty decent and serves as a as a touching bit of growth for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's honestly really nice. And way harder than it might initially seem. So props to him there. I just kind of wish that he had, I don't know, I, maybe it's not a him problem. Maybe it's a me problem. I just, I wasn't on the ending's wavelength. Mm, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, it lost me a little bit again in the end. But up until that final ending turn, I was pretty much on board with it. And a lot of that does have to do with the story's treatment of Leon and Nadja and uh, Helmut, um, who's played by Matthias Brandt, he's Leon's publisher. The interplay between those three characters is they're all talking about art or attempting to talk about art. In Leon's case, I think failing pretty terribly because he's trying to be more than what he actually is. And he's not really saying anything that's necessarily true. It's just something that he thinks should be true. Um, that interplay really works. It also gave me a lot of pretty terrible flashbacks to grad school and all of the dumb stuff that i said when i was a student myself hey you know we we've we've all been there i i shudder to think about some of the things that i probably said in uh you know my college writing workshops too not great i do really like uh a mealtime conversation that occurs uh with with all the characters but specifically uh leon nadia and helmut the the editor where uh nadia reveals uh, something about her her interests and her capabilities that up to that point have not been uh, hinted at at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a recitation of a poem. And Helmut and Nadia, 
and the rest of the characters just take such pleasure in the recitation of that poetry that they literally ask for a repetition of the poem as soon as it's done. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's contrasted so sharply with Leon who can't receive that moment as anything other than this person is showing me up somehow. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm kind of feeling left out of this moment and how that's just so completely unfair. It's a very, again, perceptive portrait of of how hell is basically being trapped in your own neuroses. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. uh, there, there's a, a, you know, it's a lovely moment where everyone's just able to bond over shared enjoyment of a piece of art. And all he can think about is himself and his feelings and his prowess as a writer. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's marvelous. Just keeps on digging that hole deeper and deeper and deeper until he can't go any further honestly yeah and everybody else is in heaven at that moment too just in very sharp contrast i love that scene yeah it feels a little bit like something that you'd see out of a lewis book actually like i i was thinking a lot about the the great divorce mm-hmm. in that moment like sure kind of seems like leon's in his own little like he's his personal own hell. napoleon personally yeah his, his exactly. own little napoleon yeah yeah exactly yeah well uh listeners that is our review of christian petzold's a fire we might have had some quibbles with it but there's some interesting stuff going on in this film, and if you have seen it as well, we're interested in your thoughts on this particular work of art. You can hit us up on Twitter at Pod or on Letterboxd at that same handle. You can also shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be reviewing a much-beloved film from one of our listeners in our second half with our review of The Quiet Girl. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who are helping us keep the conversation about movies going. And because Barbenheimer was such an event mm-hmm. last week, we definitely heard from some listeners about their experiences with one or both of those films, including on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we heard from Felix Rodriguez, who tweeted at us and said, didn't get to see Oppenheimer yet, but did enjoy Barbie quite a bit. Like Sarah, I gave it 3.5 out of 5 stars. I believe that's a reference to my Letterboxd review, mainly because some of the arguments raised seemed quite scattered, and it's not clear how seriously the audience is supposed to ponder on them. The monologue by America Ferrara was somewhat forced as the encapsulation of the film's message, and one would have preferred a not-so-direct exposition, leaving it up to the spectator design. Still, the production design was truly stunning, as well as the performances from Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie, top-notch actors. And I agree with you there, Felix. Yeah, uh, like, to be honest, that's kind of... Felix lays out, almost point for point, a lot of my reservations about Barbie. (laughs) I would not go as high as as three-and-a-half stars if I were... Uh, forced to give it a a star rating but uh yeah there's there's some issues with it but definitely agree that margot robbie and ryan gosling like five stars for them yeah worth the price of admission for me for sure i also know that i had a little bit more fun with that movie than you did i think yeah i mean you know it, it is what it is uh but there's definitely a lot of chatter going on uh, around both of those films. So listeners, if you have any thoughts about either Barbie or Oppenheimer, or hey, both is good as well, then let us know. Add your voice to Felix's. Let us know what you thought about either of them. As always, we'd love to hear it. So now we're going to go to not the watch list, uh, which is usually the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen, and then we discuss it here on the show. This week, um, we actually had one of our Patreon supporters do the picking for us. So instead of me selecting a movie for us to pair with a fire, our Patreon supporter, Ron Sturry, selected The Quiet Girl for us to watch. So neither of us had seen this movie, which feels like, you know, something special here. And um, I don't know, I'll be very interested to hear your thoughts about this particular movie, Kevin. The Quiet Girl was nominated for Best International Feature Film for the Oscars for last year, so it's very recent, 2022. In it, Kate, played by Catherine Clinch, is quiet and forgotten, the youngest daughter in a poor family in 1970s Ireland, 
who are about to add another baby to their number. Her troubles at school and at home lead her parents to send her away to live with relatives for the summer, where she begins to blossom under their care and their attention. So, Kevin, did the quiet girl have something substantial to say, or did you wish that it had spoken up a little bit more? <laughs> I I like that that ask, Sarah. Well done there. Thank you. Yeah, you know, um, I really liked this film quite a bit. So thanks so much to Ron for for suggesting it. I'm I'd meant to catch up with it, but you know, I just other things got in the way, and shame on me for that. Um, I really appreciated the modest scale of this film you were talking about you know did did it have anything substantial to say and probably the answer to that would be not particularly like it's not a film that is really trying to deeply explore complex themes the the story is a pretty simple one uh we follow kate through uh her summer uh with these distant relatives kind of coming out of her shell and uh, she grows and changes, but it's not like there's a strong narrative uh, force that's pulling us through this film. It's much more interested in kind of how she, she opens up and kind of learns to love life (laughs) with, Mm -hmm. uh, with the help of this elderly couple who take her in from her family. Um, And, that's really all it is. And I just, I I kind of appreciate a film that is willing to just sort of be itself, um, be, be very simple and yet be unabashedly sincere in the way it explores, uh, the, the feelings of its protagonists, um, and the, just the, the desperate need that its central character feels Hmm. for a family that cares about her that as one as the uh the matriarch that she's living with says she just needs somebody to mind her Mm -hmm. and i i just really appreciate it i i like i i was it would be so easy to try to goose this film with a lot of drama like make her make kate's life especially miserable Mm -hmm. um and that would be a complete mistake. It reminded me a little bit of After Sun in that way, where it's mm-hmm. a very small film, it's a very modest film, but the still waters run deep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this movie isn't trying to change the world, and I think that that is exactly the right tone for it to take. I also enjoyed this movie quite a lot, too, um, specifically because of the strength of the photography and also the performances that are at the center. It kind of feels as though... The whole story, such that it is, it's really not much of a story at all. It's just Kate is having a difficult time at home and her parents are willing to send her elsewhere so that she can get the love and the attention that she needs because she's not capable of receiving it at home. That's a heartbreaking thing. And like you said, it could have been goosed or it could have been kind of turned up to something that is much more melodramatic and frankly, like emotionally unsatisfactory and it's not it's just a very simple story about something that very believably could happen and you can tell that Kate's mother loves her very much and also just does not have the capacity to be able to mind her in the way that she needs so in order to give her that attention she does the heartbreaking choice of of essentially giving her away for a summer which is a really difficult thing to have to watch a parent have to do and at the heart of this movie we get Kate basically growing a little bit more into her own. I don't think she becomes any less quiet than she already is to begin with, but I think she becomes a little bit more confident in that, especially as she's spending time with her, I believe it's her mother's cousin, Eileen, who's played by Carrie Crowley, and then Eileen's husband, Sean, played by Andrew Bennett. And um, those three characters, as they sort of grow into an easy coexistence with each other, really hold up this movie I don't even want to say they hold up the story because again there's really not all that much of a story to it it's just three characters learning to exist with each other and appreciate each other and that's really all it needs to be and I think it's quite beautiful at doing that yeah the um it's pretty impressive in its in its own way to make a story about a character who is so reserved um and not 
try to make her her big um character arc revolve around oh well she comes out of her shell and she becomes outgoing she changes who she is to kind of fit a much more conventional uh model of confidence mm-hmm. um th- you know th- kate doesn't become any less quiet over the course of the film she's kind of more just affirmed in that and loved for who she is mm-hmm. um sean at one point tells her minnie's the person who lost much uh because they were they didn't stay quiet when they could have mm-hmm. and it's a very wise thing to say it's it's reminiscent of that passage from proverbs that talks about how a f- a fool is constantly talking. A wise man is uh, thought wise because he doesn't talk as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked how the film leaned into that. And it's also tricky because performance-wise, it's a it's a very subtle performance as well. Kate isn't the sort of person to make a big fuss about something. She doesn't have any sort of huge emotional epiphanies or breakdowns. She's just simply herself and very quiet and she kind of just needs somebody to not think she's weird for that mm-hmm. that one of the early moments of the film where we kind of see her get subtly wounded is she's at school and her big sister's friends tell her big sister like your sister's so weird mm-hmm. just because she's awkward and uh lacks confidence and it's it's just nice to see a film that again doesn't try to make her have this grand emotional journey she just grows a little bit and that's all she needs to do yeah it's a really difficult performance i think and i think Catherine clinch does a really good job of getting a lot of that interiority across without betraying too much she's not playing big or broad at all it's a very subtle performance um i liked that you compared this to after sun because it's not the, quite the same register as Frankie Corio in that movie, but it's the same, I think, level of skill in a child performer, which is really, really difficult to direct and also really difficult to perform in a way that feels very believable. And I don't know, Clinch feels just so natural in front of the camera, even as she is giving off this expression of being uncomfortable in her own skin and being uncomfortable being under everybody else's scrutiny. And the first time we meet her, she's literally lying underneath like a tuft of grass outside. It's of a her. wonderful opening shot. It's, it's beautiful. And I wasn't expecting where the camera went when the camera did finally make that turn downwards, because we start just looking out towards the horizon over this field. And then the camera does a quick tilt, not a quick tilt, but you know, a tilt down to see her, just sort of curled up in the grass and we can hear her sisters calling her name and she's very clearly not answering them. And she feels so uncomfortable under anybody else's scrutiny. And yet she very clearly wants that love and that attention and she doesn't know how to ask for it. That's a really tricky duality to be able to hold in two place in a single place at once. And I think Clinch is able to do that I'm not entirely sure how she manages it because so much of what she's doing is literally just in the eyes and the way she holds her mouth. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's especially considering that this is Clinch's debut role. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a very impressive performance. I do think that Colin Buried's, uh directing is very savvy just in the way he he kind of, he, he directs her performance to not go too big, which uh, is is the right way to go. But also... The, the way that he shoots her, it's almost like the kind of a Kuleshov effect mm-hmm. where she's kind of expressionless. She's not outwardly reacting strongly to a lot of the things that are going on around her. Um, and because of that, the audience is encouraged to imagine what's going on inside her head because there's no outward indication of what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have to do a little bit of gap filling uh, for for her. And in doing so, I think that really brings us closer to her as a character so that even though she isn't outwardly demonstrative of emotions, we are really emotionally identifying with her because we're doing a lot of the the emotional work in filling in those gaps for her. And I think that's a lot uh, in Bered's 
directing instincts as much as the performance itself. And also the editing, I think, by John Murphy, who I haven't seen any of his other work, but I did like that too. It's a kind movie too. And I think that it could have, again, it could have gone well over the top into something like saccharine or a little bit too much. And a lot of that kindness comes from the understated performance by Clinch, but also the performances by uh, the rest of the cast around her and the way that they read those lines. So when when Kate first comes to live at the farmhouse for the summer, um, she's having some trouble sleeping and she's ha- had this problem that's been demonstrated up until that point at home as well, where she's been wetting the bed and she's too old to be doing that. And Eileen, who's taken her in, notices that this is something that's happened and she just says oh these beds they're so weepy around here and then she just sort of brushes it off and she doesn't chastise her for it um she just acknowledges that it's a problem and she says i'm not going to give you a hard time about this because you've clearly had enough of a hard time already and this isn't the time or the place to do that and it's a really savvy piece of screenwriting i think tells you a lot about how kind eileen is and it also automatically made me trust her as a character much more, too. Yeah, I'd be interested in going back and watching this a second time to see specifically the way that Braid, um frames Kate uh, in a lot of these shots at the beginning of the film versus the end of the film. I want to say that I noticed uh, in the early going a lot of shots that kind of circumscribe or... Uh, uh, cover up bits of Kate. So that opening shot where she's she's almost camouflaged in the grass. You almost don't notice her there until mm-hmm. you have a few seconds to sort of let your eyes adjust to what we're seeing. Um, when she first goes to live with Eileen and Sean, uh, she's getting her hair brushed and we get this shot of her face in a mirror where it's it's literal. it's like a, a hole cut out in the rest of the the frame and her face is just uh, in a, in a disc hmm. in the middle of the frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the film goes on, we see her helping out around the farm with, with Sean and Eileen. And it feels like we we're seeing her less enclosed by frames within the frame. I'm not 100% confident that that is a consistent visual strategy but it feels right just based on this first viewing. And I'd be interested to go back and see if that's actually borne out with a rewatch. Yeah, that's making me want to go back and, and take a look and study those frames a little bit more, too. I did notice that there was a lot more intense close up on Kate's face, especially when she's whenever she's in the car. And then not intense close up just on her face, but also kind of funky angles looking out of the car in the same direction that a child, I think, would look at trees that are passing by on the roadway. So this is a movie that's very closely attuned to what a child of her age would be paying attention to and what they would be focused on, especially if they're bored at the end of a long car ride. So there's that clear and careful attention there. But now I kind of want to go back and see like how closely do we get that framing in in the early points, because it does feel a little bit more expansive towards the end of the movie. And I don't know if that's just Kate's attitude or if that's part of the cinematography strategy too. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a fair amount of shallow focus in the film as well that makes sure to emphasize Kate within the frame, especially late in the film. So uh, late in the film, obviously, the summer is drawing to a close. Uh, her her mother has just had her baby. And so um, the, the next logical step uh, is that she's going to go back to live with her birth family Mm -hmm. and uh we get a scene where she's kind of it's her last morning uh with uh sean and eileen and she's by herself she's at the kitchen table uh drinking a a cup of orange juice uh the others the the adults have left to tend to their farm duties she's by herself and then she she stand she sets her glass down the table stands up and kind of walks towards the camera and then off frame yes um and the but the camera stays stationary um and it maintains the same focus so she's she wasn't focused in the foreground she's no longer in the frame but the focus stays the same so that the background is still in that soft focus Mm -hmm. and it seems almost as if that focus becomes even softer as if and the cinematographer kate mccullough um almost seems like she's purposely playing up the out-of-focus background, almost as 
to suggest that this kind of happy life that Kate has built for herself over the course of the summer is kind of slipping away from her. Mm. And um, even as it's helped kind of crystallize her sense of herself. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, it, it's a very elegant visual uh, bit of, of craftsmanship there that doesn't necessarily call attention to itself, but if you are as keyed into the character's internal landscape as as you or I was, mm-hmm. you you kind of I, I felt like this film really sharpened my sensitivities to visual strategies reflecting her inner feelings than I would have in a lesser film. Yeah, it's not a very showy movie. So I did want to ask you about some of the slightly showier flourishes that the movie does end up employing. There are a couple of moments where we get the use of slow motion. First when Kate is running to go get the mail, and then a couple of times when we see a ladle or a bucket get dipped in the well on the farm. And I don't know how well those necessarily worked for me because it felt almost as though it was calling a little bit too much attention to those small moments and gestures until they actually do become later on a little bit more important. But I'm curious to know your read on that, too. I mean, I, I was a total sucker for him, to be honest. Like, <laughs> um, I especially uh, shots of of water in slow motion just feels very baptismal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tend to just eat that stuff up with a spoon. I really like those uh, moments from the film where uh, Kate visits a well and you know she's able to drink this this crystal clear water, refresh herself. Um the slow motion scene where we first see her run down to the mailbox is the first time we've seen her kind of just get to be a kid. Hmm. Um, every other uh, scene with her up to that point, she's been you know sitting very still, almost as if she's afraid of calling attention to herself because it'll be negative attention, which is believable given what kind of a man her father is. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and the moment where she runs to the mailbox is sort of like this this great unburdening. And I like how Berea lets us sort of uh, luxuriate in that moment, almost in the same way she is. So mm-hmm. it really worked for me. Uh, so that's that's my defense. I don't know if that's convincing to you, though. I Yeah, I don't know. It felt just a little bit too much, like just this shy of too much. But I like your reading on it. And I think that's warming me up towards both of those strategies, I think, a little bit more. Nice. Uh, I mean, it's a film that's easy to love. Also, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have a, a young son at home and I have to say, you know, watching, watching this film made me want to go and hug my son that's really good. hard and be the best dad I can be. Mm. And I think that that's something that shouldn't be discounted in a film like this, that, that does kind of inspire you to be your best self, you know, kind of looping back around to what we were talking about with a fire that's something that art can do really well that, uh, you know, if we get too caught up in insisting on certain aesthetic rules, it's easy to overlook or rob ourselves of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I, I think that this film does a great job with that. And it's a it's a very worthwhile thing to to experience and to take with you into the rest of your life yeah and and to sit and just spend time with i do want to stress that neither of these movies are didactic at all they're not telling us how to think or feel about any of their characters but at the same time i think just the act of spending time with kate in particular um i don't know it felt like i felt like it opened me up a little bit more towards being a little bit more kind even though the movie wasn't explicitly telling me to do that it was just demonstrating that kindness i i mean that's that's kind of it, you know not to get overly you know overly spiritualize this this film but it does feel a lot like how a christian witness is is supposed to work where mm. you live out uh the joy and love of the christian life so fully that people are just naturally they want what you have mm-hmm. um and i think uh, a film like this one that's so good uh kind of does something similar where you you want to be good because the vision of goodness is just so so inspiring and re- you you receive it like a balm it's just it's lovely to have that in the world and to have more films that kind of put that out there mm-hmm. um so i'm glad that we got to uh experience this one yeah i kind of wish that it had been a little bit more 
praised towards the end of last year. You know, I mean, it an flew Oscar under no- the radar. Yeah. yeah, an Oscar nomination isn't nothing, that's for sure. But it definitely was one that I was sort of aware of, but didn't hear a ton about. And I kind of wish that it had gotten a lot more praise. And at the same time, this isn't the kind of movie that's going to be asking for that either, which makes it feel even more worthwhile to seek out and watch. So do recommend this one. Thank you for recommending it to us, Ron. Yeah, Ron, thanks so much for uh, being our watch list uh, picker for for this week. Uh, Really like this film and uh, you brought it to our attention. So kudos to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very interested to know if you have uh, any further thoughts, Ron, about this film, about why you chose it for your patron pick. Let us know, obviously. And if any other listeners out there have seen it and uh, have thoughts on our takes, hit us up on Twitter, Letterboxd, or over email. We'd love to hear your thoughts about that. But that'll do it for this week's episode. Next week, we are going to kind of return to business as usual Mm -hmm. with our watch list segment. And, you know, it might be a little bit of whiplash to go from, you know, the, the gentle... Uh, pleasures of The Quiet Girl to this film that I'm going to choose. Uh, We're going to be reviewing for our new release, They Cloned Tyrone. It is a Netflix film that has currently uh, hit the streaming service, so it's available to watch right now. We're going to be talking about next week. I'm going to be pairing it with one of my top five horror films of all time, which is George Franju's 1960 film Eyes Without a Face. So a little bit of a a different uh, vibe Mm-hmm. Uh, on the watch list segment, but I really like the film and I hope you will too. So. I mean, every horror movie you've recommended so far in the watch list is a horror movie that I've appreciated. So I'm really looking forward to this one too. Nice. Hopefully I can keep that streak alive. Listeners, if you want to watch Eyes Without a Face along with us, it is streaming for free with an HBO Max or Criterion channel subscription. It's also available to rent on demand elsewhere. So pretty easy to find if you know where to look. Thanks a lot for listening, though, to this week's episode. We really appreciate you tuning in. Seeing and Believing is brought to you, of course, by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.